we're trying to make our way through the Bible. And the book of Acts is sort of like a linchpin from the Gospels, which we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Knowing who Jesus is, understanding his life, his death, his resurrection, what it means to us. Now then, how do we turn our attention to how do we live as this new body of Christ called the church? And so that's where we're going to be. And I'm just going to pick out seven highlights. I could have picked out 400 highlights. And you, if you're study, if you've studied the book of Acts, you might have picked out different highlights, but these are the seven that I picked out. I just want to tell you the story behind the, the event and then try to give you one application. So you just follow along with me. We're going to start in Acts chapter one. And Jesus is still with the disciples. And we have really the key verse for the whole book of the book of Acts is chapter one, verse eight. And in verse eight, it says, Jesus is saying, but you will receive power. This is the power. This is the fuel of everything that happens, not just in Acts, but even up to today. The fuel or the power is the Holy Spirit. And when he has come upon you, you will be my witnesses. And notice these sort of outer circles. First Jerusalem, then Judea, a little bit wider circle, then Samaria, even wider, and then to the end of the world. So this is a key cornerstone and commission. The the cornerstone is the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit and then it's going to thrust you out. Whenever you get the Spirit of God, it always has an outward flow to it. It's never just a, a collection just to you. It's always moving outward. And so we might say this is the key or this is the um, the cistern, the the fuel tank that you always have to tap into, even today, in order to move out correctly. Does that make sense? I'm not going to say that every time, but every story has a tap into the Holy Spirit. So once we have the Holy Spirit, now we're moving outward. And then I want want you to know, then the the disciples began to speak. And it happens actually in chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. You see that in the very beginning. The day of Pentecost arrives, chapter 2, verse 1. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 4. And they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so what's happening is the Holy Spirit comes in a very unique way on the disciples. And then they start speaking known languages. They didn't know the language But they were gifted miraculously to speak a known language to somebody in the crowd because everybody had come back to Jerusalem and there was all kinds of different nationalities. And now the apostles, who all basically speak one or maybe two languages, are going to speak several languages to these people to help them understand the gospel. Now, you could imagine being at that event thinking, oh, my gosh. This this whole moment has sort of descended into chaos. I I can't hardly understand what they're saying. Everybody's speaking a different language. And some of the people mocked the disciples and said, Hey, I think you guys started drinking early this morning. Now, the, the highlight, the shining moment I want you to see is in verse 14. The question is, what are the disciples going to do? When people come back to the disciples and say, hey, I'm mocking you, I'm making fun of you, I don't believe what you have to say, how are they going to respond? That's the big question. And the reason it's a big question is, how did they just previously respond at Christ's death? When everybody came to get Jesus, what happened to the disciples? Well, they all scattered. 
Even Peter, right? Peter, the one who said, hey, no matter what happens to the other eleven, I'm going to be the one. I'm going to be the one that stays with you. And he, he didn't just scatter, he denied Christ. So we've got this big moment now. We've got pressure coming on the eleven or twelve disciples saying, hey, we don't think you're right. We think you're goofy. We think you've been drinking. We think this is all made up. How are they going to respond? Verse 14. Now, this, I really wish I could have seen this little moment. Does, you can read right by it, but I think it's a shining moment. This is like a slam dunk. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice. So he stood up, and he lifted up, and then he began to preach. He stood up, and then he lifted up, and he began to preach. This is such a, a key verse. Uh, what, what, were, what were the disciples thinking? Were they looking around like, who's going to stand up first? Or they knew Peter should stand up and we're going to stand up behind him. I mean, you, I just wish I could know what that feel was right at that moment. And these 12 men stand up together. What a great, I, w- I would love to have this picture in my office. 12 men and looking at each other saying, guys, it's time to stand up. It's time to stand up. These people don't know what they're talking about. And they may be mocking us, and they may be mocking us after we're done, but we're going to stand up, and we're going to lift up our voices. Now, you know these 12 men, they represent the foundation of the church. The, the number 12 often in the Bible is used quite frequently in the Bible, and most biblical scholars think of it as a foundational number. So how many tribes were there that founded the nation of Israel? Twelve. How many disciples were there? Twelve. When the new heavens in Revelation 21 come down, the new heavens and the new earth and Jerusalem comes down, how many foundation stones are there? There's twelve. So this is the foundation. These twelve men serve as the foundation to say, hey, what you need to do if you're going to be built on this foundation, you've got to stand up and you've got to lift up your voice. So what about you? First of all, are you fueled by the Holy Spirit? This isn't something you can just do on your own. I'm not trying to give you a list of five things to go do today. I I need to make sure you're tapped in to the fuel tank of the Holy Spirit. But if you are, where is he calling you to stand up and lift up? First little highlight, easy to just read right by it. Chapter 2, verse 14. Second highlight, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. The church begins to grow pretty exponentially. And then immediately becomes uh, that we're not only serving physical needs in the church, or uh, spiritual needs in the church, we also have to serve uh, physical needs. And there's some kind of distribution of food here in these first four verses. Now, these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, this this, uh, Greek group, arose against the Hebrews. So there were Jewish people who grew up in a Greek culture and then Jewish people who grew up in the Jewish culture and their widows, and there was some sort of argument about the daily distribution of food. 
So widows were poor. They didn't have a way to supply food for themselves. And so the disciples or this group of people had been trying to supply, but there was an argument. And the 12, verse 2, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, who will point you will point to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So this, this is not a slam dunk highlight. Like when you read by this, you go, okay, why, why is this one shining moment? This is one shining moment because Peter and the disciples realize they can't do it all. It doesn't matter how talented they are. It doesn't matter how tapped into the Holy Spirit they are. They simply cannot do it all. There's spiritual needs to be served that are significant. There are physical needs to be served that are significant. And we just can't do it all. And so we've decided here in Acts chapter 6, this huge highlight, and I think of it as a, a great pass, and think about how easy or how desirable it might have been for the disciples to hold on to all the leadership and all the power. And they say, no, we're going to make this pass. There has to be another group that begins to serve the physical needs. And this is really where we begin to see the division between elders and deacons. What does an elder primarily do? He primarily focuses on the spiritual needs of the congregation. What does the deacon do? He primar- the deacons do? They primarily serve the physical needs of the congregation. It's a huge moment. And somebody has to be ready for the pass. They can't just sit past the ball and then it gets dropped. No, somebody's going to say, okay, we'll take that ball and we'll move in this direction. And they're going to start doing this ministry called uh, the, the deacon ministry. Now turn with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, because I think this is an important passage for this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. You'll see how Paul says the same thing. Ephesians 4, 11. And he gave, God gave, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I, these five things that are basically spiritual nourishment for the congregation. And these people are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's, that's the phrase I want you to keep in your brain. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints... For the work of ministry. So Paul Phillips as an elder, as a pastor, has certain gifts. And I'm supposed to equip you, the saints, for work of ministry. And that word equip is to perfectly fit. And the way I thought about it is like a seamstress. You know, if you're going into, if you, let's say you're going to get married, right? You, you pick a dress, but it doesn't perfectly fit. So you have to go find a seamstress to make sure it's either wide enough or long enough or tall enough or this enough or all these kinds of things, and a good seamstress makes it perfect just for you. And so my goal, my hope, is to get you perfectly fit for a work of service. And I love the little Greek phrase there. It's ergon, E-R-G-O-N, ergon diakonos. Say that with me. Ergon diakonos. That's you. What's your ergon diakonos? What's your work of ministry? 
If I'm passing the ball, if the elders are passing the ball, if the teachers are passing the ball, and you catch it, what is it that you're perfectly fit to do? You can't do everything. But you can do something. Something that maybe you're just uniquely, perfectly fit to do. On the back table as you leave, where the bulletins are, there's this piece of paper. It's 8 by 11. These are the things that you can get involved with. There's more, but these are the primary things you get involved with at Christ Community Church. There's 15 different things. And it can be flowers, and it can be music, and it can be youth, and it can be the service team. There's all kinds of things you can do. And you may not be perfectly fit to do all of them. I'm not perfectly fit to do all of them. But you are perfectly fit or should be getting perfectly fit to do something. Ergon diaconus. What is, what is that for you? Acts chapter 6. Now, that's the second highlight, third highlight, the book of Acts. Chapter 11 and 13. If there was one church I could be, uh, I would want to be a congregant of in the New Testament, it's this church, Antioch. I mean, of all the churches that get planted, whether it's at Ephesus or Corinth or whether it's at Philippi or in Galatia or in Jerusalem, this is the church. If, if, if Jesus said, hey, I'm going to put you back in one of the churches, I'd say, put me back in Antioch. And what I love about Antioch is this church, they take risks. They're risk takers. And I'm going to show you how they do that in three different ways. Verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution, so earlier in the book of Acts, uh, one of the saints, Stephen, was, perse- was killed, and that persecution spread out into Jerusalem, so the disciples were scattered, and uh, fr- that overseer, and they, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So they're moving north, primarily, out of Jerusalem, out of Israel. They're speaking the word, notice the end of verse 19, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So these are Jewish people. They're going out into these areas. There are Jewish synagogues in these areas. And they're going to that synagogue to say, hey, we know about your God. And we want to tell you about the the shadow in the Old Testament has actually come to pass. So although there's some hostility and questions, it's, it's a safer place to be. Now, verse 20, but there were some, notice that, not everybody, but this is the group I want to be in. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus to them. See, there, there, there were a group of people who were basically getting the gospel. And then as this group of people looked around, they said, hey, the group over here, the, the people who are totally outside, they don't know about Jesus. So some in this group have to go over there and meet with some in those group. Who wants to go? I do. That's the way I'm wired. I'm looking to get out of this group and into a group. That's why I did Young Life. I go out to the high school. I find out the group that doesn't know anything about Jesus. That's the group I have a heart for. It's not everybody. So I don't want you to feel bad if you're, if you like that group better, okay? I'm not trying to make you feel, I'm not trying to guilt you into doing it. What I'm saying is if you're over here and that's your heart, then be some of those 
some, if that makes sense. Right? Be one of those some. And you see what risk? Huge risk. I know everybody over here. I, I know the language. I know how to speak because I'm a Jewish guy. I'm talking to Jewish people. And i got to help them see Jesus. But I've got all the stories to help me out. When I come over here, totally different culture. Who knows? They might be doing this for three hours. But some people are wired that way. And, and, and there's some in Antioch who just love this. And some people at Christ Community Church have to be some of those people. They look around their city. They look around the world. And they say, I love this, but, but I've got to move out. Antioch. Man, this, these guys I love. Let me, let me just show you another thing that they do. Verse, chapter 11, verse 26. And when they had found him, they brought him to Antioch. This is Paul. And for a whole year they met with the church. They taught a great many people in Antioch. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The Christ ones. Antioch is a major leading cultural city. It's on the bend, if you think about the Mediterranean Sea going around into Turkey. It's right on that corner. So there's a lot of trade north-south and east-west. It's probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire. 200 or more thousand people live there. And this group of people started a church, and everybody in the city knew who the Christians were. Hey, they're, they're the Christ ones. We may not have ever heard of Christ. We don't know what that really means. But they're living for this person called Christ. There was a missionary story I was reading this week of about a guy who went to China. And when they, he got introduced in Chinese, uh, they said, Yasu Yan. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. So he began to say, hey, every time you introduce me, you say, Yasu Yan. What's Yasu Yan? I mean, I like to know what I am, right? And they say, that means Jesus man. I mean, is that what people would say about you? See, this isn't the sum. This is everybody. In your home, in your school, in your business, in your neighborhood. You're the Jesus man. You're the Jesus woman. That you just live differently. You live for someone else. I may not get it. I may not understand it. But I see it. Antioch, that's what their church was like. When you met somebody at the church at Antioch, they were the Jesus man or the Jesus woman. Oh, how I'd love that to be true about Christ's community. Whatever they're doing over there, they're following Jesus. Third shining moment just in this one church. Next chapter, verse or chapter 13. Not surprisingly... Now, there were in the church at Antioch, 13 verse 1, prophets, teachers. These are the leaders. And there's five of them that Luke lists. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, Saul. These five people make up the leadership. And just notice the risk of this. We've got Barnabas. We know he's from Cyprus. We've got Simeon. Almost all scholars believe he was a black man. 
We've got Lucius, he's from Cyrene, that's North Africa. We've got Manaean, he's from the court of Herod, so he's a ruler, he's a prince. And then we have Saul, who's actually Paul. Why would it be so critical for this church to have so much diversity on its leadership? Because people from all over are coming into this church. And one man can't represent everybody. So they have different people to say, hey, you're from here, you're from North Africa, or you're from Cyprus, or you're a black person, or, or you're a Jewish person, or whatever you are, hey, you can, you can make a connection. So whoever came into the church, there was a way to get connected to the people in the church. What a great picture of the gospel. And then it's not surprising, you see in the next verse, when those guys got together, what did they get together to do? To move out. And the Holy Spirit said, let's take two of these guys and let's move out. It's great that you've come to Antioch. It's great that you've gone to the other side and start talking to the Greeks. But I'm ready to go for you to go to another continent now. So you see the vibrancy, the life that's coming out. These people are tapped into the cistern of the Holy Spirit. And they know they're always going to be moving out. And this is the church that's ready to move out. Are you one of the some? Are you the Jesus man? The Jesus woman? Can you take risks? Can I take risks as a leader to have different people in leadership for the glory of God? Acts chapter 16 is our fourth shining moment. You notice how I put some shining moments all together and you say, Paul, you snuck in three shining moments in one. Well, that's what happens. This is not a shining moment, but it's important. Verse 36, Acts 15, 36. It's between, you need to think about this, these five verses, 36 through 41, being a valley between two giant mountains. A loss between two buzzer beaters in the little shining moment video. The, the first mountain is the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. This, this group of people got together and said, hey, guess what? Lots of Gentiles now are coming in. Greeks are coming into the church. Do they have to first adhere to the Jewish customs? Or can they just come in because of the power of the Holy Spirit? It's this huge moment. We don't have time to describe it. It's just a giant mountain. Then, Acts chapter 16, Paul goes off on his second missionary journey, and he moves out of Asia into Europe. It's a huge moment. The, the man from Macedonia, remember that? He has that dream. A soldier stands up, come over here, and he goes over into Greece. It's this giant moment. And in between these two giant mountains is this little valley. It's like when you see the one shining moment, some of the moments are losses. I mean, they show the buzzer beater and then they show the, the crowd on the other side. Oh. And after some days, Paul and Barnabas, the first two who had been sat, sent out on the first missionary journey, they get together. Hey, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. This is a great plan. Let's go back. Sort of re restore, uh, to, to shore up, to encourage. 
Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, which they had taken on the fir- he had taken him on the first missionary journey. But Mark, about halfway into the journey, for whatever reasons, he decided he wanted to go back home. You get the feeling that he just didn't want to pursue through hard times. And so here we got this three man team, and in the middle of the thing, one guy stops rowing. And that's, a, that's, it made it hard on Paul and Barnabas. But Barnabas wants to give John Mark another chance. But Paul thought best not, this is verse 38, best not to take the, with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. You see the sense of we, we, he really bailed on us. And there arose such a sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Paul that they separated from each other. And one went one way and one went the other way. This is a loss. This isn't a shining moment. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He's the premier encourager. If you ever wanted a friend, it would have been Barnabas. Because you would have come back saying, I'm ten feet tall after I'm with Barnabas. He's the one who went to go get Paul to bring Paul to Antioch. Paul. Who wouldn't want to have Paul? Of course you would want to have Paul as your friend. I mean, the Apostle Paul as your friend. Right? This strong, forceful personality who, who just plows through the most difficult things. You feel like, man, if he's on, in my foxhole, we're going to win. These two guys can't stay together. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. See, Luke could have said, I'm just going to go from mountaintop to mountaintop. Acts 15, where we got this thing settled, going to Europe. Why, why put these five verses in here? We, we wouldn't know. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Even two great people can't stay together sometimes. I wish it weren't like that. But it was like that in Acts chapter 15, and it is like that today. And, of course, we want to work towards unity, but sometimes it just doesn't work out. And so I'm very glad Luke put this in here. Because if he only just put slam dunks and buzzer-beating shots, then I would have said, hey, that doesn't look like my life. i got a lot of valleys in here. And so I'm glad he put this in here in this Shining moment real. Number five. This is the fifth shining moment. This is the way God works. This is very important just to see how this happens. Paul and uh, Silas now, they go into Greece because they've seen this. um, They've had this vision and they meet a, a woman named Lydia. Verse 14. This is chapter 16, verse 14. One who was uh, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was the worship of her God. And then this is how God works vertically. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul, and she was saved. How does God work? He opens the heart. The first step is always God's step. You can't step towards him until he stepped towards you. You can't love until he's first loved you. It's always a, a movement of God. So Luke sort of pulls back the curtain 
and he helps us see from an eternal perspective what's happening to Lydia. Yes, she's responding to a sermon, but she's responding because the Lord has done some kind of operation in her heart. Same chapter, verse 30. Because of this uh, Christian, this uh, Paul's influence on the city, he gets thrown into jail. You remember there's a great earthquake and the jailer thinks that uh, everybody's escaped. And because everybody's escaped, the jailer's going to kill himself. Because he let other people escape, he was going to be killed. So he decided to kill himself. And just before he's going to run the spear through his own chest, Paul says, hey, we're all here. And the Philippian jailer runs in and asks Paul, you see it in verse uh, 30, Sirs, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? Now, it's very important that you notice what Paul didn't say. He didn't say, dude, the Lord's got to open your heart. Hope he does. Good luck. No. What does he say? Believe. There is something you can do. You can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can turn away from the way you're going and turn towards Christ. That's the horizontal relationship of how God works. I can preach and you can believe. And praise God, that happens. But what do we know that stands behind that? It's not my preaching. It's not your believing that comes first. What comes first? The Lord opens the heart. This is the way God works. Sometimes you just see it on this plane. But you know there's another plane. There's a vertical plane that's happening. And that's a a moment we want to understand how God is working. Number six, shining moment, verse Acts chapter 19. I just want to just explain this to you. Paul comes to Ephesus, and this is a crazy city. And on, in Ephesus, there's this uh, huge temple that dominates the city skyline. It's financial, uh, it's uh, prostitution, it's idol worship. So Paul comes into this city. And he preaches there for two years. Every day, he, takes, he goes to this little rented hall, and he just preaches. And I want you to know, that's the shining moment. It doesn't look very exciting any one time you go. It's just one guy with a Bible standing up trying to tell you about Jesus. And, and Luke wants you to know, and I want you to know, that's a great moment. That's a great moment. Paul does it for two years in so much as everyone around began to hear about Jesus. If you're new to Christ Community Church, that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to teach the Bible. And as we teach the Bible, lives get, tra- lives get transformed and then the culture begins to transform around that. We know from Ephesus you have the seven churches in Revelation, right? Right? It all starts in Ephesus, and it goes out to these other six cities. We know in Ephesus there was a guy named Epaphras. Remember this? And where did he go? He went to Colossae, which is where we get the book of Colossians. We know from the book of Ephesus that the whole city got turned upside down, saying, oh my gosh, we're going to lose our money in this city because of the gospel. And they had this this, uh, stadium full of people cheering for greatest Artemis, greatest Artemis for two hours. A football game. All because one man standing up with the Bible year after year telling people about Jesus. 
That's a highlight. Any one time, it doesn't look that exciting. But over time, things, people, lives, cities begin to change. Let me get to our last shining moment. Acts 28. Some of you I know are saying, Paul, you missed a shining moment in Acts chapter 20. So let me just read it for you. Paul goes through this city named Troas. Verse 7, on the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul stalked, talked still longer and longer. I just skipped over that highlight, all right? Why Luke decided to include that, I have no idea. Especially my name being Paul and talking longer and longer. I don't want you to fall asleep. I certainly don't want you to fall out of your chair and die like Eutychus did. So we'll skip by that highlight and we'll get to the last highlight. Acts chapter 28. Very verse, very last part, verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. And he, Paul, lived in Rome two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to men, came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You see, back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Paul's tapped into the Holy Spirit. Because he's tapped in, he's some of the people who go to the other side. Now he's in Rome of all places, and with great courage, he's proclaiming the gospel. But you know, that's not the end. There's a church network, I really love their name, it's called Acts 29. You know why? Because it's the church that's continuing to go. Didn't stop in Acts 28, it's Acts 29. We're part of an Acts 29 church. We're, we're, we're still moving out. And so my question for you today is, first of all, are you really tapped into the Holy Spirit? Or, or are you just tapped into your own resources? I'm just trying to do this all on my own. That's not going to be fruitful. Got to tap into the Holy Spirit. But if you're tapped in, it has an outward flow. It always has an outward flow. And my question is, where is that outward flow for you? Where is your ergon diakonos? Where is your work of ministry? It could just be on a service team helping people inside the church. That would be a wonderful thing. It could be that some need to move out into a totally different place, which could be as simple as across the city or it could be across the world. Don't know. The Spirit of God continues to move. We want to be filled with His Spirit and move according to what He wants us to do. Let's pray together. Lord, there's, there's so much here that got left. I pray that you would take what is here and use it for the benefit of your people. That they would become part of the, the, the shining moment highlight reel that continues on, has now has continued on for 2,000 years. 
And and in any one moment, it may not and probably won't look very spectacular. It'll just be a a faithful parent, a a faithful preaching, a faithful teacher, somebody who who constantly shows up in in a Sunday school class week after week. I mean, who knows how you might use it for greater purposes. But would you use us as a church to be the kind of church that when people saw us, they'd say, they're the Jesus people. They're the the Christians. Whatever they do with their lives, it's first wrapped around what Christ would want them to do with their lives. Strengthen, guard, protect, give perseverance to your saints, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing song. Thank you.